Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Jay Lombard, and today we'll be mapping leaky brain on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected. We are all unique and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Jay Lombard. Dr. Lombard is regarded as one of the foremost neurologists as an internationally acclaimed clinician, author, and translational neuroscientist. As the former chief of neurology at Bronx Lebanon Hospital and co-founder of Genomind, he now specializes in mystery diagnoses, rare diseases, and ALS, where he integrates a holistic approach to patient care. We start this episode talking about leaky brain, but get ready for a deep dive into biochemistry and many clues into how we can better support clients and patients diagnosed with complex neurological diseases like Parkinson's, ALS, and Alzheimer's, as well as those with autism and Asperger's. Dr. Lombard, I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be here. So we are talking today about leaky brain. There's so much interest in leaky brain. Can we just talk about what that means for an instance? Absolutely. So it's interesting because the connection between leaky gut and leaky brain is based upon very similar morphological features of the gut mucosa and the brain, meaning that what produces this uh, leaky gut are the same things that actually lead to a breakdown of the blood-brain barrier, which is one of the core precipitants of neurological diseases, is the breakdown of that blood-brain barrier, or otherwise a leaky brain. I want to talk more about that blood-brain barrier because it's so fascinating, but I'm curious, in your history as a doctor, this notion of leaky gut or leaky brain, have you had people contest that that doesn't exist or that we're using the wrong language for it? What's been your experience with that terminology? Well, it's interesting. So from a pure scientific perspective, one of the major theories about how neurological problems occur is due to gut dysbiosis and the proliferation of abnormal pathological bacteria, including E. coli or clostridium or even fungal microbiome abnormalities. The question always is, well, how does a gut uh, bacterium produce central nervous system effects And there's really two hypotheses. One is that the mucosal barrier is broken down, which leads to a low-grade septicemia that can seed first the bloodstream, 
and then transmigration across the blood-brain barrier uh, through similar mechanisms where these microscopic microbial organisms secrete certain enzymes called proteases that break down the blood-brain barrier and the gut mucosal barrier. So uh, there's a lot of pushback that how is it possible that a gut bacterium can reduce neurological problems? And that's one of the areas of criticism that pushes back against the idea that the leaky gut and leaky blood-brain barrier from the brain are potentially mirror images of the same pathological process. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And we're basically talking about a natural permeability that becomes hyperpermeable for one or many reasons. Do I have that right? Correct. And the other theory, which I think is even as strongly well-documented, is that these bacterium don't necessarily have to go through the gut mucosa into the bloodstream to reach the brain. They could hitch a ride through something called retrograde transmission through the autonomic nervous system so that dysbiosis can lead to quantifiable changes in brain structure and brain function directly through nerve impulses as opposed to the vascular route. So I think it's probably a little bit of both. One of the, again, the pushbacks from conventional infectious disease doctors is that for a person to have an infection that comes from the gut to produce a neurological disease or infectious disease would really be sort of a fulminant meningitis-like picture like you see in, in children with E. coli meningitis. So that's kind of why they push back on the possibility that these infections reach the brain through the mucosal barriers, both in the gut and the brain. When we think about the blood-brain barrier and these barrier systems that exist in our bodies are meant to protect us, can you just talk to us a little bit more about what that barrier looks like? And you have been talking about how it gets bypassed, but what some of the triggers or other triggers that we haven't identified might be for breaking down that barrier? So it's very interesting. So if you look at the components of breast milk, which contain these glycosaminoglycans or GAGs, these are what creates a better mucosal viscosity of mucosal barriers, including glutamine, by the way, which also decreases the permeability of these barriers. So many of the compounds that are found in human breast milk were designed with a purpose, that is to help the newborn child to receive you know, these immune-enhancing sugars that promote the synthesis of myelin and also reduce the possibility of infection by building up uh, gut mucosal immunity. So many of those compounds that are found in breast milk are also available through dietary sources in the form of prebiotics like inulin, polysialic acid compounds, and acetylglucosamine. Uh, these all are similar complex proteolipids and proteosugars that are also found in breast milk to enhance mucosal barrier function. So there we have a antecedent if the mama is breastfeeding or the parent is breastfeeding, we are then getting some of the protective factors for that barrier. Exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, I know I shared with you, Dr. Lombard, that my husband died of a glioblastoma. One reason we know that brain tumors are so difficult to treat is because of that barrier system and any agent 
getting past that barrier system. So how do we think about the protection and limitations of the barrier system? What a phenomenal question. So there's some super interesting research that goes to actually manipulating the blood-brain barrier through biophysical modalities, both to enhance permeability so that delivery of drugs that otherwise would not reach the blood-brain barrier, and for instance, in glioblastoma, but also to enhance what's called the glymphatic system, which is part of the blood-brain barrier, where these ultrasound modalities can promote the efflux out of the blood-brain barrier. So I always tell people it's not a black and white issue. It's a granule issue. You want the blood-brain barrier to be semi-permeable and functional, which it is in healthy conditions. If it's hyperpermeable, that's going to lead to you know increased inflammation of the brain, particularly in patients with traumatic brain injuries where we know that there is disruption of the blood-brain barrier. But also we have to use those understandings to promote the ability for the brain to push out pathological proteins like amyloid through the blood-brain barrier by actually increasing its permeability. Yeah, fascinating. So when we're thinking about triggers for the leaky brain, as we're talking about, and I want to get into what we see, like what conditions you work with and what conditions we might see. But when we're thinking about triggers, can you talk a little bit more about pathogenic mechanisms and what that means, what you've seen, if there are particular pathogens that are corresponding or correlative with certain disease states? My clinical experience, I see all sorts of very, very complicated neurological problems, conditions like ALS, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Lewy body disease, multiple sclerosis, even autism, Asperger's, and chronic traumatic encephalopathies. And what they all seem to have in common, I call the SIT hypothesis, that there's disruptions in sleep hygiene. And I'll explain a little bit the pathophysiology of why sleep disruption exacerbates these types of conditions. History of infectious disease, whether Lyme disease, uh, recurrent C. difficile infections, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, and trauma, both physical trauma and emotional trauma. So I call it the SIT acronym because understanding that SIT acronym allows us to not only do you know more comprehensive histories, but allows us to think proactively about what we can do in those conditions based upon those three risk factors. You know, I think the idea that we can identify a single microbial organism, you know, I get people that say this is all from Lyme, blast them with antibiotics for Lyme disease. There's other groups that say it's all mold and fungal infections. There's others that say it's all in the gut. I call the infectious connection to neurodegeneration the unholy trinity because it's not one particular genre of microbial infections, but the whole gamut. We need to understand that even though these are very different microorganisms, their RNAs are different, their DNA is different, they have very similar pathogenic mechanisms in which they release toxins that affect the microtubules and the cytoskeleton of cells, which is what correlates all these to produce neurodegenerative changes. I love that you talked about the unholy trinity and this idea that a lot of practitioners think through a particular bias or lens where they focus on the Lyme or the mold or the 
C. diff or whatever it is, the E. coli, the one focus that they've seen treating the candida that works for them. And what I hear you saying is that when there's dysbiosis, there's likely many of these factors going on because the body's lost or maybe not even lost, but its ability to fight infection is diminished. And then we're exposed basically to a number of pathogens. Yes, exactly. So with the SIT hypothesis, where do you start and where can I, in my role and the thousands of people that I train in the science and art of functional nutrition, where can we support where you're starting in order to really, I don't want to say accelerate, but like more fully allow for healing or a slowing of the process to occur? You know, the word detox, right, which I think is thrown around as a sort of a buzzword, like detox the brain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that we need to put a more technical word attached to what we mean by detox, which is called autophagy. Autophagy is a process that allows the body to remove toxic protein aggregates, whether it's amyloid in Alzheimer's or TDP-43 in ALS, alpha-synuclein in Parkinson's disease. So autophagy is, is both an intracellular and an extracellular process. The intracellular aspects of autophagy have to do with the mechanisms that mostly take place in the lysosome of cells. So there's been a lot of research with reducing ER stress, which is based upon the same principle that you want to actually have a functional endoplasmic reticulum to break down these protein aggregates. But we in our studies are paying much more attention to lysosomal dysfunction as the root cause of defects in cellular autophagy. The good news in that regard is that there are many non-pharmaceutical agents that can promote autophagy by promoting the health of the lysosome to be successful in degrading these pathological aggregates that build up in these conditions. The second aspect of autophagy is actually an extracellular process, which is mediated by a system called the glymphatic system. The glymphatic system is very similar to the lymphatic system of the body, except it's a specific system unique to the brain in which once you have extracellular deposition, of amyloid or alpha-synuclein or other protein aggregates in the interstitium of the brain that they are taken up by the glymphatic system, dumped into the cerebral spinal fluid, and in the CSF can potentially be removed through anastomoses with the spleen and cervical lymph nodes. We know that structural reasons, such as traumatic brain or cervical spine injuries, can actually interrupt the glymphatic system and therefore impair at a biomechanical level, the ability to clear these protein aggregates. So what I do in my clinical practice and also in terms of our research studies, we're looking at how to enhance, again, lack of a better word, detox or autophagy through intracellular mechanisms that promote lysosomal activity. And from an extracellular approach, we're looking at modalities using ultrasound and other biophysical interventions to promote glombatic function at a biophysical level. 
What do some of those interventions look like that you're implementing in your practice? So on the biophysical level, I am working with a number of chiropractors, which if you had told me several years ago that I would be uh, working with chiropractors, I would say, you know, never. Right. In my, you know, how dare you even suggest that I'm working with chiropractors? But there are some really extraordinarily forward-thinking chiropractors who actually explained to me that there is a structural basis due to altered mechanics particularly at the craniocervical junction, which impairs CSF flow and inhibit lymphatic function. And they developed a modality called atlas orthogonal, which is a non-invasive, really a non-manual way of identifying through MRI studies where specifically there is subluxations in the high cervical spine that can be corrected through this approach. And we've actually assessed patients pre and post to see if this treatment has any effect, not only clinically, but also radiographically. And I'm happy to report that, and this is a very small N at this point, but maybe, you know, 12 or 15 patients where I've seen clear improvements in patients with neurological problems based upon the application of this modality. When you're talking about improvements, what does that look like for the patient population that you're seeing who has complicated and advanced diseases? What is improvement? So many of the patients that I see have some level of bulbar dysfunction, whether it's dysarthria or difficulty swallowing. A lot of these patients have difficulty even keeping their head in upright position. They get what's called head drop. We have seen visible improvement. Is it to the point where their dysarthric speech becomes suddenly clear? No, I wouldn't put it that dramatically but clearly objective and subjective improvements in those bulbar function abnormalities. So my takeaway, and there are many, but in terms of where we fit from a functional nutrition arena in these complex cases in supporting both the patient and neurologists such as yourself is focus on the right side of the matrix, focus on sleep, which may be hygiene, may be disruptions that we have to uncover, focus on those easier to consume, high nutrient dense, blended potentially foods so that we're not introducing nutrient deficiencies with a limited diet. Is there anything else or is, do I have that right, that that's where we can come in and help and partner? Let me give a big shout out for looking at the research on olive oil, particularly. Olive oil and some of the polyphenols in olive oil significantly promote autophagy. That's why many of the people in the cardiovascular research realm believe that olive oil is helpful for patients with atherosclerosis. Atherosclerosis is also considered a defect in autophagy where you're not able to remove the plaque material that is in blood vessels. So I would encourage people to look at the research on olive oil polyphenols as a non-pharmaceutical way to promote autophagy. Clearly, other nutraceuticals, resveratrol, nicotinamide riboside, also appear to play a role in promoting autophagy in these conditions. You mentioned sleep hygiene. I would suggest to all the physicians and clinicians that are on your podcast to do a very detailed history of sleep hygiene, to consider sleep lab evaluation or some of these sleep devices that can record not only nocturnal REM sleep, but also oxygen saturation. 
I could tell you that 90% of my patients who present with neurological problems have some evidence of either central sleep apnea or obstructive sleep apnea. And hypoxia is the worst possible thing to leave untreated. You can throw everything at these patients if you don't address their oxygen levels, particularly at night. Your ability to actually help these patients becomes severely limited. So much gold, so many clinical pearls. Thank you for the work you do, Dr. Lombard, and the associations and connections that you make. I hope to stay in touch with you, to continue learning from you, and I'm excited to have had this time with you. Thank you. You're very welcome. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks to Natalie Merrill, Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, and Rowan Bradley for their support in making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our full body systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.